here. Welcome to episode eight of Talking Fanfic. Um, I don't have an interview this week. I honestly just wanted to do a quick episode. We'll see how this turns out. If you're listening, it means I liked it well enough to publish. Yeah, so let's get... There's just a few little bullet points. I just wanted to see if uh, anything came up. Um, uh, next week, if all goes well, we will have another interview with... Drumroll. Libertine Past. I'm stoked about this. Libs is one of my favorite people in the fandom. I've not gotten to talk to her in person yet, so I am super excited to have her. So uh, that interview will be happening next weekend if all goes well. So that's really exciting. Um, I'm super looking forward to that. For uh, Yeah, so let's see. What have I been up to? Uh, not writing. Not much writing. Uh, just the past month, or I've talked about this, I just haven't been very productive really since I started the podcast. Um, so that might have something to do with it, but I did write a lot this year up to then. Uh, but there, the great thing about this fandom, uh, recently, ever since the show debuted on Netflix is that we have new writers. So I was just going to scroll through real fast and, uh, and see what we got. There's, there's just a lot of new stuff. And I was looking through it the other day, um, and last week when I was talking to Switch and there's just all this new stuff. It's super cool. So let's see, what do we have here? Um, we've got a bunch of stuff. Uh, Gen K is doing their their dark dark thing. They're they're doing some new stuff. Uh, it looks like centered on Crease and Hawk. Um, we've got a new La Russo by Yamakumo. Um, back in Black eighty. Oh, Beta Cobra finished Free Flight. Congratulations to Beta Cobra, which. Um, it's his series of 500 word one shots around Miguel, the pairing of Miguel and Hawk, um, which I imagine he would be quite pleased with the, the aesthetics of the word count, 15,000 words flat in 30 chapters. Um, so I just thought that was awesome, because they're exactly 500 words. So um, I love that. Um, so that's cool that he's finished that. That's awesome. Gosh, what else? There's just a bunch of stuff I haven't read. So uh, forgive me if I don't mention something that you've got up here. Um, oh, there's a an ABO fic with Johnny as the Omega. Um, if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to explain it. If you do know, there you go. Um, I haven't read that. Um, oh, I do. I should mention that one I have read is a new author called Ace Squid, who's doing some Sam Tory stuff that's really interesting. They're a good writer um, that I really enjoyed. So uh, walk with me out on the wire. The summary sentence there is, uh, Tory says, you don't know anything about me, LaRusso. Like it's something Sam can't learn. I love that line. And uh, I love that walk with me out on the wire is a Bruce Springsteen lyric. And that the fic has some springsteen quotes and stuff in it so and it's very like driving at night and born to run kind of a feeling sort of a restless a restlessness an east coast very springsteen restlessness about it which i love um oh counterpoint i don't i can't remember what uh the lady disdain said if she's she's only a couple chapters from the end so if you like uh the idea of johnny lawrence with a smart sassy uh, strong original character named Kate Williams, uh, and sort of a it's not it's not really a rom it's not a rom com it's a drama, but there are some funny moments. I mean, just kind of I don't know what genre. When I have her on here, eventually, I'll ask her about. I'll make her come on here. 
and talk about counterpoint when it's done. Um, let's just review that. 238,266 words, 44 chapters, 693 comments, 177 kudos, 27 bookmarks, and over 7,600 hits. It's a huge, it's a behemoth work. So well done on that update, lady. Oh, I talked about Who is Like God by A Lazy Panda, which is my favorite fic, maybe my favorite work in progress in the fandom. Um, and I am going to workshop that at some point. I meant to do that this week, and I just am not prepared to do that, and I want to give it a fair shake. But please go read that. It's awesome. Oh, there's a really cute one by Anahita. It's a sort of a Daniel Johnny and Amanda Daniel. There's kind of a whole polyamory thing going on in that, but it's it's really cute. Oh, Lost Magician. Congratulations, my friend. Finishing As We Fall in a Sequence, which Another aesthetically pleasing 25,000 words flat, 50 chapters. Lost Magician uh, is a very popular author in this fandom for good reason. She's one of the kind of handful doing explicit fic, uh, but it's always well done and it's always uh, underpinned with emotion and sentiment and storytelling. She, she also has quite a following on uh, Twitter, which I call them Twitter gals. I don't know that they are all actual girls are identified that way but uh there's a really fun group of people on twitter that sort of worship at the church of lost magician and i love that um so congratulations to lost magician for finishing that Ooh, i still need stories of my life if you're listening you're probably not but if you are i still need to read your teen la russo because uh it's gotten a great response um 141 kudos already which it's the 12th today and that was published on the third that's nine days, 141 kudos. That is crazy. Well done. I will read that soon and give you a comment. I think I mentioned Narcissa Black last week, finishing the five love languages, which was really sweet. Oh, she did have one. Did she have one recently? Oh, To the Light and the Thunder. Oh, yeah. It's a LaRusso, but it's also Torisha, Tori and Aisha. And I haven't read that one either. There's so many I'm behind on. Uh, but that's a work in progress. Looks like one chapter of question mark chapters um, in which Johnny helps Aisha get the girl and Johnny realizes that he'd like to get the guy. Really sweet. So anyway, that's what's going on generally. Uh, sorry if I didn't mention your story, but it's just me and I only have barely any listeners. So don't feel too bad. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I did just briefly want to address the recent kerfuffle uh, on Tumblr. And um, don't worry, I'm not mentioning any names, and it's not going to get nasty at all. It didn't get nasty. It got a little sassy. I just want to say something real quick, because it did cause a little, a few feathers ruffled in the Discord and on Tumblr. For good reason, there was a user, who shall remain unnamed, um, that took issue publicly with the La Russo ship, which is the romantic pairing of Daniel and Johnny. And yeah, felt the need to express that publicly and uh, quite strongly on Tumblr. And uh, I saw somebody had shared it on Twitter and I got a little, little hot under the collar, but I calmed myself down, but I did want to respond to them. So we had some exchanges, which were mostly polite. Regardless, that doesn't matter. Somebody took issue with a ship, and we all know where that road goes. It goes to Star Wars, which is a horrible fandom 
as far as the conviviality of its fans uh, in fan fiction, um, which is to say that there is something called shipping wars, which is when a fandom decides that they want certain fictional characters to be together romantically, and uh, they get very angry with people who disagree with them. Or it's just one ship, and some people love it, and some people hate it, and uh, they proceed to scream at each other uh, on social media about it. So that that's just a little, it was a little smacking of that. It was a lot smacking of that. It was ship-hating. And I think the reason I wanted to respond was that uh, we've worked very hard in this small fandom to foster an atmosphere of respect between each other. We don't all like the same characters. We don't all write about the same romantic relationships with our characters. And it's not only respect, it's that we take the time to read outside of our taste a lot of the time. I noticed that a lot in this fandom. And it's pretty small, but uh, we kind of all know each other. So there is uh, occurrences of people just, you know, oh, I like LaRusso, but let me try this um, Amanda Anoush fic. Or let me try this original character paired with Johnny fic. And uh, we do that a lot. And we try stuff outside of our normal wheelhouse. And uh, even if we don't like it, you know, we respect each other. This is a phase in the fandom where we're getting an influx of new fans and new readers and new writers. And it is, I think, the responsibility of the current and OG day oneers, if you will, to keep that atmosphere polite, keep the, to foster that respect between each other. Again, I got a little hot on the collar and maybe didn't handle it as well as I should have, but I was mostly polite. Um, but I didn't appreciate that attitude. Uh, and here's what it comes down to. That person views shipping Daniel and Johnny together as what they call a toxic ship. Because in the original Karate Kid, Johnny and his friends beat up on Daniel and verbally and physically abuse him. Which is true. They're also teenage boys. Not that that makes it right, but uh, it does happen. But in any case, they view reading about a potential romantic pairing there as essentially supporting uh, like abusive relationships, which uh, here's my response. There's a couple of different levels of why I don't see that as a valid response. I mean, you're entitled to your opinion and they are, but here's, here's my response. Number one, this is fiction. Okay. So there's a difference between a fictional world and a, the real world reality. Fiction has always existed, in particular fan fiction, to explore places that are dark or unexplored or socially unacceptable to explore. For instance, some of the first fan fiction ever was uh, between a, a romantic pairing between uh, Captain Kirk and Spock. Um, that's actually where the term slash comes from, because the, they would write it out as Kirk slash Spock to indicate that it, they were in a relationship. Um, and back in the 60s, you couldn't you couldn't even discuss that, much less publish anything telling that story. But you can now. Gay marriage is legal in this country. It's not cool to hate on gay people anymore. But fan fiction was there first. Um, so that's just an example of fiction exploring something that was socially unacceptable. But fiction also explores dark places, places that we know are morally dark uh, and wouldn't want to go to in real life. Take Hannibal. We talk about Hannibal a lot on the show. That is a show about a serial killer and murder. <laughs> and watching that show doesn't mean that you're okay uh, with murder, <laughs> okay? Watching that show means that you are interested in looking at dark characters 
in a dark world grapple with the real psychological human attraction to violence and the fact that murder does happen. Um, we would like to think that murder doesn't happen anymore, but it does. And so that that show is a uh, is an exploration of the psychological reality that people kill each other. I haven't finished it, but that's that, that's part of it anyway. But it doesn't mean that you're okay with murder if you like that show. That is uh, a fictional exploration of that, and it's compelling and it's really dark. But we watch it because it's interesting, and it's much better to explore that in a fictional world than to go out and like murder someone. It's actually a it's a it's a much better place to do that, right? So fiction is like a tool to experience the world in a safe way. So to say that endorsing something in a fictional world is the same thing as endorsing it in, in the real world is, is simply uh, not true, and it's a really dangerous way to look at the world because it means that it, it's like, it's, it sort of endorses the, uh, the idea of, of punishing thought crime in a way, you know, that if you have dark thoughts, it means that you're a, a bad person or something. Now, it means you're a human being, and uh, we're all just trying to get through the human experience and... Uh, fiction as a way of dealing with that. Yeah, th so that's my response to uh, the, the idea that it's a toxic ship and that supporting a fictional relationship is somehow practically toxic. It's not. Um, the other objection is just the simple idea that we have a right to like what we like and uh, don't be a hater. You know, if you want to read about it, read about it. And if you don't want to read about it, don't read about it. Um, and their response to, to that assertion of mine was something to the effect of, yes, you have the right to like what you like, but I have the right to speak out against it. And that is true. They have the right to make many more posts about what a terrible, terrible ship La Russo is. But uh, yeah, and they can do that. That's fine. Um, but they'll probably get blocked by a lot of people. And, you know, it's just, they say that they have the right to do that. And again, that's true, but Practically, pragmatically, what that makes you is a hater because there's nothing uh, morally wrong with what we're doing. It's not like we're, it's not like saying like, well, I like uh, going out and beating people up. And in that case, they would have a right to speak out about that. That's also illegal. That's called assault. But in any case, we're not doing anything wrong. So you can speak out about it, but essentially that makes you a hater uh, and it makes you not a very fun person to be around. It doesn't endear you to a fandom. So you're not going to make any friends if you're just out there hating on what people love. And the other, the third aspect that I would say in response is that the beauty of AO3, the archive, is tagging. So if you see a story tagged with something that you don't like, don't read it. It's as simple as that. That's the great part about tags and warnings. Um, and even if someone hasn't tagged something correctly, you know what? If you get into a story, it's not going to a place that you like. The characters aren't to your liking, you know what you can do. You can push the back button and move on with your life. And uh, it's easy. So anyway, I'll wrap that up. I hope I was uh, in line there with that response. What I would say to my fellow fandom friends and writers and readers is that uh, let's keep this a positive fandom where we like what we like and we ignore what we don't like. And let's not hate on anybody you know, fiction is a method, as I said, of exploration. And I really like when writers try things that are risky or places that are unexplored, you know. And some people don't like those 
especially if it gets dark. Some people don't like that, and that's fine. But I really appreciate people who take some risks with their writing. A Lazy Panda has actually done some really uh, wonderful one-shots in there. Let me find the series here. There's a couple authors I just want to mention. Let's see. There's a piece called Good For You by a Lazy Panda. Um, it's part of a series called the You series. It's written in second-person point of view. And it's Robbie reflecting on a sexual relationship that he's in with Tori. And it's basically about two people with self-esteem issues and intimacy issues. And they're in a physical relationship and they're dysfunctional. It's kind of Robbie's reflections on finding somebody that sort of understands you, how life has treated you and your experiences in life. uh, And sort of the therapy of that or being seen and understood uh, in a way that he can't with Sam, somebody who's lived a very different life than Robbie has much easier life. And some people don't like to see the teens in sexual situations. Uh, and this one's uh, in perfectly good taste, but it's the reality is that kids that age do do have sex. We have something in this country called teen pregnancy, for example, that's physical evidence of that. It actually does happen despite what some people will tell you. Um, but some people don't want to read that and they don't have to. But I will say that that's such a well-written piece. I think it's some of her best work it's it's uh it's 900 words and it's really well done. So that one's called Good for You by Lazy Panda. Uh another one that I would say is a piece that took some risks is a piece by Lost Magician. Title is Hashtag Not All Men. Uh all one word no spaces. And it's a character piece on Tori and her dealing with some mental health problems and uh, some angst and the uh, crush that she develops with her karate teacher, Johnny, and how this character has experienced men in her life and how she approaches uh, this kind of crush that she has on her teacher. And it's dark. Essentially, she sort of uh, comes on to Johnny, a man that's, uh, you know, uh, 30-some years older than her. And some people wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, but she did it. And it's, I think it's one of the best things that, I think it is the best thing that she's written, to be completely honest, because it's gutsy and it's risky and she handles it so well. There's nothing, if you're afraid of Johnny's behavior, he does the right thing. I'll just spoil that there. Um, So there's nothing that makes you feel icky or gross. Um... It's just a coming-of-age story. It's short. It's only 2,500 words, but it's one of the best things she's written. Like I said, it's just a, it was a gutsy piece, and I just think that you should read it. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but anyway, that that sort of connected with the whole Tumblr thing was just that some people will come in here in fandom invariably, and they'll try and be the purity police and tell you what you should and shouldn't write, and uh, it's bullshit. Write what you want to write. And on the other hand, read what you want to read. And if you don't want to read it, that's that's totally fine. But that's the great part about an archive of work that people write as amateurs and they write it for free, is that it's this wonderful collective uh, sort of playground where people can put up their imagination, their works of imagination, and we can search through it and file it and tag it so that we can find what we want to read and what we don't want to read. There's actually a series of filters to exclude stuff that you don't want to read. So that's all I have to say on that. 
So we're very happy as a fandom, I think, to get new readers, new writers. Let's keep it positive. And uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be a really exciting year. And getting season three is going to get us even more readers and writers. But it's an exciting time. I'm going to try and make, I think, shorter episodes too, because I think with the interviews running two, two and a half hours, I think probably some people aren't getting through them. So we'll see how long my one with, but I'm really excited to talk to Libertine Path. So fuck, maybe we'll talk for three hours. I don't know, but maybe we'll talk for an hour and keep it short, sweet and exciting. Um, Maybe the last thing I just wanted to talk about briefly was um, since I haven't been writing as much, I went online to my local independent bookstore. I don't shop on Amazon. I'm not trying to shame anybody who does, but instead of giving Jeff Bezos my money, I gave like $100 worth in books to my local independent. And the thing is, I didn't get the books the next day or even the next week. They came two or so weeks later. Um, But I'm so glad to be supporting a small business who's trying to survive in this time of COVID. I'm a passionate person about small business. And I know that there are trade-offs to shopping small. You usually don't get the selection you want. You don't get it as fast. And sometimes you pay more. But my... I love having a a diverse business and marketplace. I don't want to live in a world of Targets and Walmarts and the only other option is Amazon. I love small business. I worked for 10 years, almost 10 years in small business. It made me who I am. It was at the formative period of my life in my, uh, right out of high school through my twenties. And uh, I met the best friends in the world there. And I became who I am today because I worked at a small business and I learned a lot. Um, so I'm a, I'm pretty passionate about small business. So anyway, if you, uh, just try and support your small business and, uh, your local, uh, restaurants, um, you know, COVID is a reality, but there's also carry out, um, and outdoor dining and all that good stuff. Um, but really, you know, try and if you like how your neighborhood looks and you don't want it to be just a conglomerate carbon copy of every other town with chain stores, I would encourage you to support small business. So I'll get off my like second soapbox of the episode. Sorry, guys. Um, But anyway, I spent a bunch of money at my local and um, bought several books. And, you know, I bought a bunch of books on the craft of writing, um, which in the past I've been kind of like, ugh, this is just what writers do when they feel bad about themselves and they they, uh, don't have the balls to actually start writing. Um, they just want to read about writing and who wants to read about writing when you can just write and learn as you go, which is true, uh, in a sense, but I think some of these are going to be helpful. And, you know, if I'm in a little bit of a rut, you might as well read about what you want to be doing as opposed to sitting on the couch watching Smallville, <laughs> which I could be doing too. Um, but the, uh, the one I wanted to talk about is called The Art of Fiction, Notes on Craft for Young Writers. It's by John Gardner. So I'll talk about that. The other ones that I haven't started, there's a book called Bird by Bird by Annie Lamott. So at some point I'll dig into that one. But I've heard of that one before. It's a 25th anniversary edition. So it's been around a while. It's supposed to be good. I bought another book called uh, John Trumby, The Anatomy of Story. I think that one's maybe even more focused on screenwriting. I think he's a screenwriter, but it looks good and and it had some great reviews. So fuck, I don't know. 22 Steps to Becoming a Master Storyteller. Gosh, can't wait till I'm a master storyteller, you guys. Gonna have to go through all 22 steps. But in all seriousness, I've heard it's good. Oh, and I bought the uh, 
the fan fiction studies reader, which might, it's academic writing, and generally I find academic writing to be dry and boring and pedantic and uh, obscure. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to give this one a try. Um, one of the episodes that I quoted in the uh, introductory episode was um, by an author called Francesca Coppa. She's on the board and one of the founding members of the nonprofit, which runs AO3, called the Organization for Transformative Works. And they safeguard and ensure that we have a free archive that doesn't delete stories without telling you. It has a board of directors that just keeps things vibrant and fair. And, and those guys work really hard to uh, keep stuff from happening, like like fanfiction.net. I don't re remember what year. They, there was a big purge one year of explicit fix, and people's work just disappeared overnight, uh, and uh, no warning. Uh, so AO3 has rules and stuff, and uh, you know they're nonprofit. I don't actually know how they how why they can't do it, but uh, it's supposed supposedly it's a safer place to put your fic. I don't know. I should really learn more about OTW, the Organization for Transportive Works. Uh, I should learn more about that and what that actually means. But in any case, she's got an essay in here of this collection called the Fan Fiction Studies Reader. So um, if I find some good stuff, I'll I'll let you guys know and I'll talk about it. But I haven't started that yet. And then before that, I already own Stephen King's On Writing, which is oft quoted when you're reading about what books to read about the craft of writing. And it's kind of a memoir, and it's his, um, it's his sort of collective advice and his sort of toolbox for, for writing. I mean, essentially, all of this stuff comes down to uh, just read good stuff and write every day a lot. But it's nice to hear specific advice. And I do also own a copy of The Elements of Style by Strunk and White, which I fucking need to read. I don't really know how to use a semicolon or a comma. I use a lot of commas. So I should read this. So that's also in my pile of shit to read while I'm slacking on actually writing. Um, but this, uh, this Gardner book, The Art of Fiction, it was originally published in the 80s, 83. Um... But it's a popular one. He was a uh, instructor for creative writing. Um, I can't remember what university, some big popular university. And it does read like the introduction reads a little. It it feels a little old, to be honest, especially the introduction. And like when he's talking about writers, just pragmatically, he uses the uh, pronoun he. So don't get offended, ladies. I think it's just it was what they said back then and. To say he slash she or they or whatever would be a little fatiguing. But it's uh, it's been great so far. I'm two chapters in. Essentially, he divides the book into two, two separate sections. Uh, the first part is notes on literary aesthetic theory, which is the part that I'm in. I'm a couple chapters into that part. The second, and that's, yeah, is exactly what it sounds like. It's sort of the theory of fiction. Um, why are we writing fiction? What do we want to accomplish with fiction? Uh, all that good stuff. Interest, truth, skills, genre, fictionist dream. Um, the second half of the book is called Notes on the Fictional Process. And it's your more pragmatic advice. There's a chapter called Common Errors. Another one called Technique. Another one called Plotting. And then there's a, a handful of writing exercises so some some actual practice that you can uh, engage in to become a better writer. Um, but this, so I'm in the theory part, 
the first chapter is called Aesthetic Law and Artistic Mystery. And um, it's a great it's a great chapter. It just kind of begins on the um, the whole dilemma of trying to write a book about uh, writing advice. Um, because one of the first things he says is, uh, it's like the first rule of Miyagi-Do, uh, or the second rule of Miyagi-Do is read rule number one. Um, this one is sort of like that. It's kind of fight clubby. It's that there aren't actually any laws, uh, per se. Um, he says, trustworthy aesthetic universals do exist, but they exist at such a high level of abstraction as to offer almost no guidance to the writer. Most supposed as aesthetic absolutes prove relative under pressure. There are laws, but they slip. Think, for instance, of the well-known dictum that all expectations raised by the work of fiction must be satisfied. So he goes on to give examples of, that is a common rule. So for instance, if you're writing a, a scene and one of the characters is holding a loaded gun, you should address that at some point. Either it should be the gun has to be fired, someone shot, or the gun has to be disarmed, or you have to explain why the character is holding a gun. You can't just have some other weird conversation, not mention the gun, and then the scene's over and it never comes back. Um, but what he says is actually you, you can do that. You just have to have a reason why. So that's an example of how uh, you have certain uh, common... Uh, advice to writers, but actually there are no rules. Logic can be overruled. You know, great writers do that all the time. So that's nice. He does give some advice on some common characteristics of a good writer or what he calls a great writer. He says, on reflection, we see that the great writer's authority consists of two elements. The first we may call loosely his sane humanness, that is his trustworthiness as a judge of things, a stability rooted in the sum of those complex qualities of his character and personality, wisdom, generosity, compassion, strength of will. So he's basically saying uh, in order to be uh, someone with the ability to write uh, compelling fiction, you should be an experienced human being and somebody, and I think this goes, this sort of maybe is reflective of the fact that most people who write great work or, or successful published novels are usually over the age of 40. Because you've had some experience in life, you've probably had relationships and failed relationships, maybe you've gone through a divorce, maybe you've had kids so you know what it means to be a parent, um, you've experienced failures as well as successes, so you have like a diverse background of just life experience and all of that contributes to uh, good writing. Not to say that you can't write well when you're young, and there are exceptions of course, but uh, the, and he says this later, he talks about kind of the dictum of write what you know and how you can kind of, that's sort of a loose rule. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, yeah, somebody that's developed a core of uh, who you are as a person, compassion, strength, will, all that good stuff. I guess uh, also just going on that first rule, uh, if you feel like most of us, you probably feel like you need more experience in life. Uh, me as a 30-year-old, I feel like I'm in a really comfortable spot right now. I have a I have a comfortable job. I have a comfortable relationship. I'm in a comfortable house in a comfortable neighborhood. And sometimes I look back on my 20s, which were a little more angsty, let's say. That's where I, I feel like I draw a lot of my emotional angst from like just a period of a few years where I was just kind of, you know, discovering 
love and uh, sexuality and all, and all that stuff that is hard in your for most people it's probably in their teens for me it was my early 20s um but that stuff is all all stuff that you can draw on for your writing but the older you get the more experience you have with that uh the second element of uh a writer a good writer a great writer consists uh he says in the force uh the writer's absolute trust not blind faith but trust in his own aesthetic judgments and instincts a trust grounded partly in his intelligence and sensitivity, his ability to perceive and understand the world around him, partly in his experience as a craftsman, that is, by his own harsh standards, standards, his knowledge drawn from long practice of what will work and what will not. So that's kind of like, to summarize that, that's a, somebody who is a sensitive person, that is an observer of human behavior and nature and the world around them, and then experience trying to write. Yeah, that's, that's just kind of you have it probably or you don't. I think most of us interested in fiction are already sensitive enough people that we're interested in people and humanness and the human experience. Some of us aren't. And those people are like people interested more in things than people. So if you look at like typical careers, and this is just a generalization, but usually people are more interested either in things or people. So your personality is probably more conducive to like a writer or an artist or somebody that works in retail because they love people or somebody that, um, you know, is in restaurant service that is interested in people and being around people and talking to people or, you know, in an artist's case, observing people and commentating on that. Or you're somebody that's interested in things and gadgets. So you're, you're an electrical engineer or you're a software person. And just to be general, again, those people are generally not very good at writing fiction. Uh, they are good at, for instance, creating the internet or smartphones or building, you know, building uh, technological advancements for society. But they're not great at like, they're probably not going to be the next great novelist, if you know what I mean. Although there, there are, of course, people who are just geniuses that are, that are good at both and can do both. Um, but you do, to be a writer, you have to be sort of a, have a well of sensitivity and observation and notice what's around you and feel what's around you. So that's his second um, kind of aspect to a good writer. Oh, this is great, I think. So he does talk about the dictum to return to this, write what you know. And you hear that all the time, write what you know. And uh, that is partly true and partly a law that you actually don't have to pay as much attention to as you think you do. So the idea is that you should write things that are familiar because you will write a more resonant and deeply emotional, maybe, or realistic world that you're creating. The limitation, obviously, is that, for example, if I want to write a story about a black female cop, which sounds really interesting to me, then I'm not equipped to do that because I'm not, a, I'm not black. I am a woman, but I'm not a cop. And so... Uh, if you stick to this dictum, I would never attempt that. However, what he basically says is that, uh, he says, the novelist Nicholas Del Banco has remarked that by the age of four, one has experienced nearly everything one needs as a writer of fiction. And there are seven of these things. I'm going to call them the big seven. I love this. Love, pain, loss, boredom, rage, guilt, fear of death. Those seven things, if you can make a story come down to those, the nuggets of those seven things, love, pain, loss, boredom, rage, guilt, fear of death, 
then you can probably make a resonant story or make a character, make someone care about a character, identify with a character. And there's always the potential to overreach. If I really want to write a story about a black female cop, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time with cops, with black people, and with black women specifically. But it doesn't mean that it's not possible for me to do that. And that's also, it is also true that a writer that is black, that is a female, that is a cop even, would be way more equipped and would probably tell a much better story than I could. Um, but it doesn't, the, the whole point is that if you can reach those fundamental things that all bring us together as human beings, you can probably tell a pretty good story. But um, he does talk about, you know, research and uh, if you want to write about things outside your own world. He says, The writer's business is to make up convincing human beings and create for them basic situations and actions by means of which they come to know themselves and reveal themselves to the reader. For that, one needs no schooling, but it's by training, by studying great books and by writing, that one learns to present one's fictions, giving them their due. Through the study of technique, not canoeing or logging or slinging hash, one learns the best, most efficient ways of making characters come alive, learns to know the difference between emotion and sentimentality, learns to discern in the planning stages the difference between the better dramatic action and the worse. It is this kind of knowledge, to return to our earlier subject, that leads to mastery. So that all just means keep writing, keep writing. He does, he does comment that we cannot take time for a full answer here, how wide experience from Zanzibar to the Yukon is more likely to lead to cluttered texture than to deep and moving fiction, how the first-hand knowledge of a dozen trades is likely to be of less value to the writer than 20 good informants, the kind that one gets talking to in bars, on Greyhound buses, at parties, or on sagging park benches. The primary subject of fiction is, and has always been, human emotion, values, and beliefs. So, he's he basically saying that you can get out into the world and talk to people and probably get enough to write a compelling character, even if you haven't firsthand experienced every single thing that they have. But if you can, if you're an empathetic enough person, uh, and if you can talk to them enough, then hopefully you can absorb their experience and interpret that in a way into a new character that makes people feel things. Uh, and that's what fiction is. So... I thought that was cool, the big, just boiling it down to those things. And that's what Shakespeare does. You know, he has a real knack for getting to the, the root of, you know, this, like, Prince Hamlet. None of us have been a prince with a dead king father and an uncle who's married their mother. We can kind of all get in that dark kind of place of angst and conflict and anger and being in mourning for a parent. I don't know. I don't I don't have my head around actually well enough for that story to say something smart, but if you can get to the negative things, then people will probably care about the the characters that you're writing. So I thought that was cool. So yeah, so essentially that chapter is about there are no rules. To become a good writer, you should read good books and you should write a lot. Just keep writing, keep trying. Uh there's a quote in there about mastery being like the slow build of a storm. He says mastery is like weather. So it's just you keep trying and you keep gaining experiences and you keep getting better. And uh, so it's not like something mastery is not just going to strike one day and you're suddenly you're okay as a writer and the next day you're a master. It's just a slow accumulation of 
experience and knowledge and all that good stuff. Worldly experience, as we just talked about, can be distilled down into the basics. And you can write more than you think you can write. So that's the first chapter, basically. It's great. It's really, it was a great chapter. And the second chapter is a little more pragmatic. It's called Basic Skills, Genre, and Fiction as Dream. He really only mentions three basic genres, which this is written in the 80s. And there's way, I mean, fiction has just exploded since then. But uh, a lot of it can be put into these three categories. But there are way more. Uh, the biggest category would, would be what he calls realistic fiction or realism. And it's just trying to tell the truth in fiction, trying to tell it. Most stories fall under that genre. The second is a tale. And the third is a yarn. He says, in any piece of fiction, the writer's first job is to convince the reader that the events he recounts really happened or to persuade the reader that they might have happened, given small changes in the laws of the universe. The realistic writer's way of making events convincing is verisimilitude which is just making things true to life. The tale writer telling stories of ghosts or shapeshifters or some character who never sleeps uses a different approach by the quality of his voice and by means of various devices that distract the critical intelligence. He gets what Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith. I love that quote. You hear that quote a lot. I mean, the phrase, the willing suspension of disbelief that comes from Coleridge uh, the willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith. I love that phrase too, poetic faith. So that's a tale, getting people to buy into your world. The third one, he talks about the yarn, like Mark Twain in the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, or Baker's Blue Jay Yarn, uses yet another method. He tells outrageous lies, or has some character tell the poor narrator some outrageous lie. And he simultaneously emphasizes both the brilliance and the falsehood of the lie. That is, he tells the lie as convincingly as he can, but also raises objections to the lie. Either those objections the reader might raise, or for comic effect, literal-minded country bumpkin objections. That, though bumpkinish, call attention to the yarn's improbabilities. That one's less, the yarn is less common, but it's like a provincial, traditional, kind of tall tale, I guess at the risk of com confusing his three genres, tail, yarn, and realist. But um, essentially he talks about all, what all three of those has, have in common is that in order to build a convincing fictional dream, in order to start that projection in your head that happens when you read, you need detail. So that that's actually a lot of what this chapter is about. Detail and observation. He says he must present, as in the writer, must present moment by moment, concrete images drawn from a careful observation of how people behave, and he must render the connections between moments, the exact gestures, facial expressions, or turns of speech that within any given scene move human beings from emotion to emotion, from one instant in time to the next. So connecting these moments together to render connections between moments, as he says. I thought that was really great. I mean, you always hear, like, you should give a lot of detail in fiction, but in this second chapter, he really emphasizes that in world building, in little details. And the more I think about that, yeah, my favorite stuff is just stuff with, like, little character details. So as they're talking, what are their hands doing? Are they they're picking out a crack in the table, or are they biting their lip, or are they looking distantly through a window while talking to another character? Um, and what does that tell us? Why are they distracted? You know, stuff like that. Or yeah, just the details of the world that they live in. So most most fiction, you know, you're trying to build a world like that. And 
and suck somebody into that world because, you know, otherwise, uh, what's the point? And he's got some cool, he's got some really cool, like, excerpts in this chapter of that. But, uh, yeah, that's it. That's details everything. He says, in all major genres, the inner strategy is the same. The reader is regularly presented with proofs in the form of closely observed details that what is said to be happening is really happening. And he kind of ends the chapter with talking about the value of fiction. And this is just a broader reaching philosophical question, like why fiction? Why do we why do we do it? Why is it important? Uh, and he leaves that unanswered, but he does say a few things. He says, the value of great fiction we begin to suspect is not just that it entertains us or distracts us from our troubles. So it's not just escapism. It's not just that it entertains us or distracts us from our troubles, not just that it broadens our knowledge of people and places, but also that it helps us to know what we believe reinforces those qualities that are noblest in us, leads us to feel uneasy about our faults and limitations. And I take that as just humanism. In this very divisive time, there's some things that most of us have in common, and fiction can tell us what those things are and make us feel uneasy about our faults and good about our nobilities. You know, I was thinking today, everyone says, ah, fuck, you know, humanity's a cancer. We're such a terrible race and we cause so much damage. It's true. But we also do so much good. There's no other species on the planet that has the kind of empathy and higher level thinking where they actually take an animal in as a pet just to have a companion. Like my fat 14 pound cat, Daniel Pickles, uh, is her name, named after both Daniel LaRusso and just Pickles because it's cute. So my boyfriend and I compromised on the name. But uh, she's a 14-pound lazy cat, and she wouldn't be able to make it out in the real world. You know, and you can debate the morality. Maybe she should be a wild animal. I don't know. But I enjoy having her in my house. And I enjoy providing food for her, and she provides us with companionship and just being a sweet, awesome cat. And human, that's a that's something unique to human beings, um, and that's something to feel good about. So, yeah, he gets to this end point in the chapter um, and he's he's uh, talking about what fiction does, and he says, It was once a fairly common assumption among writers and literary critics that what fiction ought to do is tell the truth, or as Poe says somewhere, express our intuitions of reality. I think you hear that a lot. It's just tell the truth, and uh, even if you're in a fictional world that's objectively not true, there should be some element of the truth and, and sticking to real emotions and real fears and, and all that stuff, which we call the truth. So he's saying that up to now, we pretty much have viewed that as the point of fiction. What it should do is to tell the truth. Viewed in this way, fiction is a kind of instrument for coming to understanding. But we can see that there are problems to be solved if that view is to be defended. The realist says to us, show me by a process of exact imitation, what it's like for a 13-year-old girl when she falls painfully, faintingly in love. And he folds his arms, smug in the conviction that he can do just that. But questions dismay us. Shall we tell the truth in short, clipped sentences, or long, smooth, graceful ones? In other words, how? How do we write the truth? Shall we tell it using short vowels and hard consonants, or long vowels and soft consonants? Because the choices we make may change everything. Does fiction, in fact, have anything whatsoever to do with the truth? Is it possible that this complicated instrument, fiction, studies nothing but itself and its own processes? So he's saying there, that's kind of a weird thing in the middle there with the writer trying to write about a 13-year-old girl. Um, but he's saying, is that true that, that fiction has anything to do with the truth? I mean, it's fiction. 
are we all just kind of, you know, sitting there kind of in a, <laughs> to be crude, like a circle jerk as writers, like we're readers and writers. Why are we interested in fiction? And, uh, you know, people that aren't readers and writers, like maybe they're right. Maybe we should just be in the real world. And, you know, why are we wasting this time? Maybe are we wasting our time with fiction? Is it fiction for fiction's sake? Are we all just in a little room with ourselves, just interested in this thing that really has nothing to do with the truth or with life? And here's his response. I love it. A common answer at the present time is that that is the question the serious writer spends his whole life trying to work out by means of the only kind of thinking he trusts. That is the fictional process. For the moment, we must let that answer stand with only this reservation. So that first part of this is, I, that is the question. That is the ultimate question. And that's what writers do, is that we use fiction to actually answer that question. But he says, great fiction can make us laugh or cry in much the way that life can. And it gives us at least the powerful illusion that when we do so, we're doing pretty much the same things we do when we laugh at Uncle Herman's jokes or cry at funerals. Somehow, the endlessly recombining elements that make up works of fiction have their roots hooked, it seems, into the universe, or at least into the hearts of human beings. Somehow, the fictional dream persuades us that it's a clear, sharp, edited version of the dream all around us. Whatever our doubts, we pick up books at train stations or withdraw into our studies and write them. And the world, or so we imagine, comes alive. What a way to end a chapter. Um, so that's the end of the second chapter. So he's saying that regardless of these philosophical questions of the use and the nature and the point of fiction, whether it is the truth, whether it has anything to do with the pursuit of real truth in the real world, that it makes us laugh and cry and feel just like the real world. So it's important in that way, we know, pragmatically. Anyway, I just wanted to share a little bit of, of this book. Uh, I think it's a great book. I'll put it in the show notes. I'm enjoying it so far. I, th I think if any of you are, you know, having a dry spell in your writing or, or just feel like you want to do more, I feel like I just want to be a better writer and I want to be more conscious of the choices I make and what I'm doing, you know, both with style uh, and also character choices. Like, I feel like sometimes I go, wow, I just sit down and I just write and it comes out. Which is good, but I don't think sometimes I'm really thinking um, strategically ab about the choices I'm making. Sometimes I just like how it comes out. And maybe that's fine sometimes. But I think there is a truth that more experienced writers, better writers, they're always editing. They're always making conscious strategic choices in their writing. Uh, and that's just something that develops. But I don't, I don't think it develops thoughtlessly. I think you do have to think about your writing and the choices that you're making and the results of those choices and how it comes out at the end. I remember in high school, just the first time they really try and make you write like a five paragraph essay. And it's just the worst, you know, it's say what you're going to say, say it, say what you said. And it's the most like restrictive bullshit exercise it feels like. And that's what you feel like when they're trying to teach you that. But and then you write a bunch of fucking boring essays, but they are coherent eventually. And uh, that did teach me a lot. And I feel like I just didn't have a great handle on grammar and stuff. And I wish I'd paid more to, I mean, I always did well in English class, but I, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about grammar in a long time. So that's why I need to read that Strunk and White book. But anyway, um, I just think these books actually are quite good for reflecting on what you're doing, you know, and I think that's good for all readers, uh, all writers, I should say. 
And I think also that I've been really just reading fan fiction is like the only reading I've been doing over the past year. And so I picked up a novel, Donna Tart, The Secret History. My sister went to, she has a master's degree in literature and she's read way more. She's just a well-read person and she enjoyed this novel. And I feel like I just want to broaden my, my reading. So I think all of these books, they all say that reading is a huge part of becoming a better writer and to read good things. And it's, it's comforting and it's great to read fan fiction. But a lot of times the, the writing that you read, sometimes it is definitely above your level. There's all the, there's t- tons of authors that, that are on my favorites list that I just, I feel like I'm never going to be the type of writers that they are. And it's good to have your co-writers and your cohorts to, to have people to look up to. And it's true that a lot of these fan fiction writers are as good, if not better than published authors. But it's also, there's a reason that that Donna Tart has sold as many books as she has. It's because she's a phenomenal author. The Goldfinch, which is her more well-known work, won the Pulitzer, Pulitzer, fuck, I don't know how you say that, in 2014. Um, but this, uh, The Secret History uh, is a novel, and uh, my sister really liked it, so I'm going to try and read that. Um, but I think it's some of those, the list of the greats, some of them are probably overrated, but some of them are there for a reason. So, you know, reading something like Moby Dick or uh, Madame Bovary it can only make you a better reader and a better writer. So I'm not writing as it is, and now I'm taking more time to read, but hopefully when I get back to it, I'll be a better writer for it. We'll see. Okay. I think I'll end it there. Um, Yeah, next week, uh, I've got Libertine Pass coming on the show. We're going to talk about her work. She's one of my favorites. She's so funny, and she's recently, I think she's been writing the best stuff of her body of work, so she's awesome. So I'm excited about that. But um. Yeah, if you guys have any questions, uh, email me or message me on Tumblr. Uh, I'm going to try. I just feel like I ramble a lot and I, I'm i going to try to come up with some ideas maybe for like segments or just do shorter episodes, keep it shorter and sweeter, and hopefully I'll just get better at this podcast thing. So, But if you have any suggestions or you're like, fuck, I never make it through your interviews. They're too long. Or, oh, no, I make it through just fine. Or I find you boring. If you have any input whatsoever, I would love to hear it. So, um most of you know me on Discord. You can just message me there. Oh, just for new writers, you probably, if you're hearing this, you're probably already aware of the Discord. But if you're a new writer, for some reason, you're looking for community, um, there's a Discord chat. And you could hit any of us up, the Impressar, myself, uh, Miss Violet, anybody that you see regularly on Tumblr uh, in the Cobra Kai Phantom, just message the Impressar and she'll get you an invite or, you know, any of us, whatever. Yeah, it's a great group. So hit us up. Come talk with us. We've got writing hours. We've got movie parties. We look at, you know, thirsty pictures of William Zabka and Ralph Macchio. Uh, we talk about the show. It's a good time, which is a luxury. I, I've i been in um, kind of a Smallville mood, as I've said. And, you know, I, I want to talk to people about Clark and Lex and their friendship and their rivalry. But that fandom is fucking dead, dude. I found a Discord and there's like five people in it. And there's like maybe one person that's been responding like the next day if I post something or ask a question or try and start a conversation. Nobody's there, man. So capitalize on this active, very much alive fandom now because, you know, you don't want to be you don't want to be 20 years late as I am to this fandom. So uh, come talk to us. All right. That sounds good. Well, you guys stay cool. All you amateurs out there. Um, keep writing, keep reading. You know, I haven't been the best citizen writer lately because I haven't been contributing much. But, you know, everybody has their ups and downs, so I'll be back around. Yeah, but you guys have a great weekend. And, uh, yeah, Cobra Kai never dies. See you later. Bye.